Uh, welcome to a really different type of episode that we're going to release here today. Th this one's uh, pretty innovative, if you ask me, and apparently you're, you are asking me. Uh, Marymount University, which is where I went to PT school, has an annual lecture called the Malik Lecture for the Malik School of Health Professions, under which the, uh, the School of Physical Therapy falls. And every year, the topic of the lecture changes. And this year, it'd be difficult not to focus on the pandemic. It would be irresponsible not to focus on the pandemic. So that was that was the topic. And then how do you approach a lecture? Do you just put one person on a stage or a panel? But who do you bring in? And the ingredients are pretty important. So this was pretty fun. Marymount University brought in thought leaders, professors, experts in a variety of different fields in and outside of healthcare to talk about when the pandemic wanes. What, what is going to happen after COVID-19? What can we look forward to? What should we prepare for, be aware of? So we brought in four experts uh, in the area of healthcare. So we batted lead off with uh, Ken Harwood. He's the Dean and Professor at the Malik School of Health Professions, also a licensed physical therapist. We brought in uh, Jonathan Aberman, who's uh, the Dean of the Business School and really like an innovator, entrepreneur. I don't, I mean, I could go on for a while using just a bunch of those big words. Dr. Ginny Bianco Mathis, sought after in the area of professional leadership and organizational change. And then Dr. Kimberly Meltzer, this one's kind of close to my heart with my background. Kim conducts research and teaches in journalism and technology and political communication, as well as being a multiple author. So we brought these four people in and we're essentially going to go around the panel and kind of ask them a few questions about the pandemic and what they think from their unique point of view and, and subject matter area that we should be paying attention to. And I, I just thought it was some great insight to share. I was uh, I was flattered to, to, to be asked to moderate the Malik Lecture, which is kind of an honor as an alum, and um, we wanted to bring it to you. So here it is. I mean, it, it's a long discussion, but I think if you're if you're forward thinking, it's, it's going to be really, really interesting to you, some great insight. And I, I don't know, but I, I smell a follow-up with all four of these guests, especially on this show. So take a listen. The Malik Lecture in 2020 from the Malik School of Health Professions at Marymount University. When the pandemic wanes, perspectives on a post-COVID-19 world. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. Like craft beer for your ears. This is the PT Pinecast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 2020 Malik School of Health Professions Lecture from Marymount University. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Irma Becerra, President of Marymount University. Dr. Becerra? Thank you, Jimmy. I am so pleased to welcome our virtual audience this evening to Marymount University's annual Malik Lecture. One year ago, at the conclusion of the 2019 lecture, none of us had any way of knowing what the topic for this year's event would turn out to be and just how much it would turn our lives just upside down. I know for myself, life before the COVID-19 pandemic feels like such a long time ago. Because of the nature of how the virus spreads, we've had to change so much about how we operate in our daily lives. And of course, it's completely changed how the world has approached education at all levels. Here at Marymount, after several months of careful planning and strategizing, our students were able to return to campus for in-person learning and living this fall semester. Since then, we've embraced our safe, sane approach to keep our university community secure and healthy. 
while successfully managing any positive cases that occur to stem the spread. This approach involves social distancing, being a mask ambassador, integrating hand hygiene, noticing symptoms and taking temperature. Knock on wood, so far we've performed exceedingly well at a time when so many colleges and universities are struggling to do so. In the midst of this pandemic, we've been moving ahead with accomplishing the goals laid out in our strategic plan, Momentum. Our enrollment has remained stable despite COVID-19. We are more than halfway through the implementation of the cloud-based Workday ERP system. And just like an immune system that has had to fight off a disease, Marymount University is emerging stronger from this pandemic and has proved to be an adaptable, flexible, and resilient organization. I'd like to share a brief personal story to illustrate how amazing our health students and alumni are. During this tumultuous time, recently I scratched the cornea of my left eye and I had to visit the hospital. Of course, I have worries about exposing myself during the pandemic. However, I had such a great nurse alongside me in the ER. She was so comforting and I've and I found out in the middle of my care that she was a Marymount graduate. She had no idea that I was the president of the university and we had such a wonderful time connecting with each other. I was very glad that I had a saint looking over me. She's just one example of how Marymount students and alumni are stepping up in this great time of need. Our nursing graduates are leaving with their degrees and heading straight to ICUs. Our physical therapy students are working to help patients recover from COVID. And our alumni are even showing up on the Ellen Show as Jeff Doucette, a proud Marymount Saint with three degrees from the university. He recently appeared on the program with his team at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia after they went viral with a dancing video. Our saints are making us all proud. A clear lesson that we have learned from the ongoing pandemic is that it has disproportionately affected socially disadvantaged groups according to race and ethnicity, income, and other factors. As our nation rebuilds, higher education must find new ways to increase access and personalization. Thanks to our dedicated faculty and staff, Marymount is proving itself as a shining example of how to achieve these goals. Our saints, a high percentage of whom are first-generation college students, dreamers, members of other underprivileged groups, are earning degrees that will secure their future from the effects of future pandemics and times of social upheaval. We're keeping our university community safe while we're giving our students the keys to a brighter future. I am looking forward to hearing the unique perspectives of our faculty members on COVID's impact on society tonight. Thank you to everyone involved in the planning for this great event. Now I'll turn things back over to you, Jemmy. Thank you so much, Dr. Becerra. Wow, that's some great stories. I had no idea about uh, Ellen. I, I, I would love to get on that show. Do you know, do you know someone who can help me out? I think I do. <laughs> Dr. Becerra, appreciate you uh, kicking off this uh, this lecture. Thank you so much. As a 2016 alum of the uh, the physical therapy department uh, at Marymount University, I'm excited to do this. I'm honored. Thank you. All Good right. Finger. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the uh, to the 2020 Maui School of Health Professions lecture as welcomed by Dr. Becerra. Tonight, our topic is when the pandemic wanes, perspectives on a post-COVID world. We will address this topic with the help of four esteemed experts from Marymount University. They are leaders in the areas of business and innovation, healthcare and journalism and mass communication. The format, format tonight is organized with you, the audience in mind as we're all living in a virtual world. We will first introduce each panelist individually. Let them speak about how they see their areas of expertise being affected by the current global pandemic. Once each panelist has had an opportunity to give their insight, answer some questions from me, the moderator, we'll bring them all back on the screen for you to be able to see how these areas are interconnected. We don't want to give you information in a silo. That's not how the world works. Now, this is how the world works. You're likely watching this on a computer or a mobile device. If you're watching this live, we want to make sure that we know where you are and who you are. Feel free to connect, comment with the word live down below. You know where the comment section is. And let us know where you're tuning in from. Along with that, if you're watching the replay, uh, comment the word replay and let us know your location as well. Now, during the event, if you have questions or comments, bring them on. Feel free to ask. We're first going to proceed through the planned agenda, and if time allows, we'll get to some of your questions at the end. Now that we have the table set, let's begin with the 2020 Malick School of Health Professions lecture, When the Pandemic Wanes, Perspectives on a Post-COVID World. Our first guest tonight is currently the Dean and Professor of the Malick School of Health Professions. He's a licensed physical therapist and certified industrial ergonomist. He has published and presented nationally and internationally on a number of topics, including healthcare policy and leadership, healthcare safety and quality, and low back pain. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Ken Harwood. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jimmy. Glad to be here. We're piping in some uh, crowd noise because I know everybody out there is watching. They are in their living room. So uh, welcome to my living room here at the uh, the Malik Lecture, Ken. Thanks for uh, for batting lead off for us. Uh, kind of a a topic, as Dr. Becerra mentioned in her introduction, didn't see this coming, didn't uh, didn't know exactly where we would be. And right now, with more than 1.1 million deaths worldwide, with 223,000 of those plus coming from here in the United States, the death toll of COVID-19 is obviously a large focus of attention. While some might see those as surviving the virus, something we, we want to increase, as just the mark of success, there's much that is unknown about what the future implications of COVID-19 survivors is. So, Ken, my first question to you, as you're coming in as our, our healthcare expert and representative, where does the discussion even begin about what will come from post-COVID care, these survivors? I think it's such a great question, an important question, but I also think we are still scratching our heads a little bit about what's going to happen. And for me, my comfort zone is to rely upon the literature and science to give us some direction as to what's going to happen after we get either herd immunity or we get a vaccine that is effective and actually provided to everyone that has to. So what I'd like to do is kind of let's just take a step back now and let the literature give us some information. And then if you don't mind, I'll use my own personal biases to develop some kind of framework that I think we can use to try to predict a little bit in the future. Sure. So I'm gonna ask you just, if you could just um, bring the slides up. So in preparation for this uh, lecture, I went back and I did a, a scoping review, kind of a mini scoping review, which basically looks at all the literature on a certain topic. And, and in a very brief one, just kind of looking at the scope itself, what is fascinating since January 2020, 
there has been 62,614 articles published on COVID. And I looked this number up actually five, uh, three days ago, there's 5,000 more articles that have been published within that time. So that's very encouraging, but let's be honest for anyone, and especially when you consider yourself, if you've ever published anything, it can take months, if not a year, to get something published. So there is this kind of emphasis in trying to get information out there. But for us scientists, when we start to actually dive a little deeper into that, we realize that there is no way to do randomized controlled trials in that amount of time. So many of these articles are case studies, perspectives. We're starting to get much more detailed information of healthcare systems. So that's actually something that we can certainly see. The second part of that is actually, it, can we have the literature tell us what we expect to happen in the long term? So an example, things like cross-referencing terms like long-term disability, chronic conditions, new chronic conditions, et cetera. You could see how that number drops dramatically. 45 long-term disability um, articles. And to be honest with you, it was really the effect of a long-term disability on, on COVID. So, we can certainly say, and uncomfortably for many of us, we can't rely on the literature too much on predicting what's going to happen in the future. However, there are some things that we know definitely right now. First of all, if you look at this next um, part of the slide, and it's really on the uh, right-hand side of the slide, it's, it's a little small, I apologize. But actually, as we start to see there are, is absolutely what Dr. Becerra already mentioned, a disproportionately effect of COVID-19 deaths and morbidity associated with certain gender and, excuse me, racial groups. Uh, individuals who are black, Latino, and indigenous people are over three times more likely wow. to actually have um, died from COVID-19 than, than a white population. And Asian actually is about almost uh, two, 1.3, 1, 1. 1 and a half. So there's something that we definitely know. As someone who works in healthcare policy and tries to look at that in the future, we're gonna have to deal with this eventually, this um, disparity associated with COVID deaths. And I would certainly say this would affect morbidity also, or those effects, those kind of physical manifestations that don't kill you, but actually perhaps give you long-term disability. What after that, this last part is I'm finding even more fascinating. It makes sense, but there's very little conversation that's out in the media. That, and that's, I'm talking on the net as well as in the gray literature and in the literature on really intermediate and long-term policy effects of COVID. So we have a lot of work to do. So Jimmy, if we go to the next slide, what yeah. I'm attempted to do in this scoping review is basically kind of start packaging the information in as best as we can. Oh, I'm sorry, I have to switch. Those, are, those are your slides. Yeah, I'm sorry. Can you see it now? There we go. So what I did is when I did the scoping review, I recognized that we were seeing three different groups. And I think when we look at this, the effect, the long-term effects, that is the post-COVID time, we will probably have to deal very differently with these three groups. So let's take the most obvious one. We know for a fact that once an individual who has COVID goes into an ICU, their risk level for long-term effects, uh, negative effects of COVID go up. We things like, and we know that from other virus, uh, uh, in viral infections, things like SARS and other things that happened in the past. Um, 
an example, post-ICU syndrome, that is those individuals who actually wind up having really debilitating effects of being in an ICU. It is not unusual that a person with COVID actually can be in an ICU 10, 12, up to 18 days. But what was also very interesting is when you look at the literature, we can see the dramatic effects on almost all the systems that we have. Absolutely, the respiratory system makes the most sense. Um, pneumonias, the, um, also mechanical damage to because of ventilation to the uh, lung tissue, cardiac problems, both acute and, and um, kind of chronic issues have been already picked up. Mental health, something we always forget about. It is by far a very severe, uh, it could be very severe disability, especially in combination with other things. We also know that COVID-19 is a neuropathic so it actually enters the neuro neurologic system very differently. So therefore we actually are seeing both acute and chronic conditions associated with neurologic issues, gastrointestinal musculoskeletal issues. So you can see the, 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 the amount of damage and or the extent of the damage in the individual post ICU is going to need long-term care. And therefore things like workforce and healthcare policy, reimbursement policy, as well as the individual knowledge of what to do with these individuals need to increase. We obviously have a second group of those infected. Those, we actually have evidence to suggest that there are persistent symptoms that go on. It's interesting to know that about 10% of everyone who's infected with COVID-19 winds up being debilitated or at least affected with persistent symptoms for upwards to three weeks, about a, a smaller percentage actually upwards to three months, if not longer. So as we, as we start to look at these two very obvious populations, we are going to need to address health policy as well as healthcare systems to address these individual problems. Uniquely, I think in COVID, we have the whole group of everybody else yeah. that's not affected, but will in fact have really uh, resulting problems associated with this COVID, not only because of just the lockdowns and the social isolation, but we actually have been seen in the literature, absolute fear of medicalization. As Dr. Becerra also said, she's concerned when she went to the emergency room. That's exactly what's happening. But now imagine you have an acute condition or even a chronic condition or a condition that's developing that you are not getting the primary care that you need. The long-term effects of these on these individuals can be in fact severe. And finally, when we start to look very quickly at comorbid factors, we know age, socioeconomic factors, as well as comorbid factors also decrease the, the um, ability of someone to recover very soon. So what I would certainly say is that when we start to look ahead, these three groupings may help us determine what the healthcare system needs to do, as well as what our health policy needs to address. Yeah. And I can come back to that later, Jimmy, if we have some time about maybe some of the other perspectives that I have on that. Yeah, I mean, you you, you alluded to uh, Ken there a second ago, um, the, these groups of people who were feeling these effects, everything that you had just listed. And in the beginning of this COVID-19 situation, a lot of these people were being dismissed. They're, they were saying this is all in your head it was a, a common uh, response from healthcare professionals because we didn't understand it. I mean, they, they even sort of gave themselves a moniker of long haulers, COVID-19 long haulers, and they were communicating 
via social media groups that they created themselves and they the 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 patients were on purpose making sure healthcare professionals weren't able to enter because they didn't want to be discounted anymore so we actually we came across that a little bit um so maybe maybe a lesson and we find there is we didn't make sure we're listening all the time as healthcare practitioners or members in society make sure you're listening to what the individual is saying and make sure that they understand it they feel like they're 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 being heard that it's what they're saying has validity. And Jimmy, I think just one really important point is that there was a great quote from one of the articles I read, and they specifically quoted a physician who was actually a lifetime virologist, and he said he's never seen the response of the variety of responses that COVID-19 has had on people. So I think in rea reality, I think there's this confusion that we know it's a virus from day one, we know what to do. I think what we're learning is this virus is different and yeah. therefore how it affects different individuals may in fact vary. So it's, I wouldn't say it's understandable to not listen to your patient, but it's, it is understandable in a way to actually have kind of these sequelae of symptoms and or debilitating um, effects in the long term um, that makes sense on a viral infection. So. Um, as you know, I can continue to talk all night, so I'll I'll try to be polite to the other. Uh, well, I want to flip it. So, okay. Usually, I go macro to micro, right? But with you, I started with individuals because that's that's really what this virus is affecting at first, right? So we talked about how it's affecting groups of individuals. So very very micro. Let's go the other direction, and now we're looking at long term effects. And when we look at long term effects of individuals that enter the healthcare system, how do you see this? affecting what are the things that could potentially be happening to our healthcare system as a whole for a while there the conversation was about ventilators and icu beds and that was a, a good conversation or a good thing for people outside the healthcare system to say hey yeah actually we need to think about these things before they happen yeah. so what are what are the icu beds and the ventilators of the healthcare system at large down the road what should we be looking at yeah i think that again that's Obviously, as a person who is concerned about rehabilitation, I think when it comes down to that, you know, how do we start affecting the healthcare system? I think we are actually having to kind of change our perspective on the importance of not only primary prevention, but secondary prevention. That is trying to not let uh, an individual who was affected get worse and or live their life as best as they can. So I think hopefully what I would love to see is us being able to really true, truly embrace interdisciplinary care. Because I think when it comes down to it, if we have those providers of primary care uh, practitioners, along with rehabilitation practitioners, along with mental health practitioners, communicating back and forth, I think that kind of concept, excuse me, that kind of a treatment actually may be really effective. And, you know, the positive about COVID-19, we are doing revolutionary things. We are changing the way we think about things. We are changing the way we work. And hopefully what we'll start seeing is perhaps we can start changing the way we look at the healthcare system. So that's my easy answer. Um, but I have a lot of more detail that I can certainly share, but I, but I won't in the sake of time. Well, I, I will say this, Ken. I mean, I'm, I'm excited because you and I are both physical therapists. You're, I'm, I'm, I'm the moderator, but you're representing healthcare, so no pressure there. Um, <laughs> we can get specific with our profession. Our profession was born, physical therapy as a profession was born 100 years ago. Up in 2021, that's our centennial, and a lot of people say it was a pan. It was an, a pandemic of polio that really forced physical therapy into existence. Yeah. Uh, and you're you're mentioning that well, necessity, the mother of invention. We're starting to see that. 
I like to look for the the optimistic view. And you're saying we're not done yet. We, we don't want to rest on our laurels, but we are making positive strides when we work together. You mentioned interdisciplinary care. And, and also work together as systems. I think, you know, not only in, on the individual practitioner side, but I think this is when the world needs to learn from each other. I think like my big issue now is big data. And if we can start sharing big data, start sharing analytics, start sharing artificial intelligence to be able to predict who gets better and who doesn't based on existing extent data sets, uh, I think, again, we, we, we could really revolutionary um, revolutionize uh, the way we move forward. I am with you. I am. I'm, this is a devastating time. Don't get me wrong. But I think for the future, I think we have to be optimistic that we can actually start learning from what we what we can. And, and especially with this amount of data, excuse me, this amount of literature that comes out so quickly. Hopefully, the the practitioners are out there, and even more importantly, the governments and those individuals who are in charge of healthcare policy and regulations are actually looking at these things to say that, you know, maybe we can make it better. Yeah. Well, th this lecture, the Malik School of Health Professions lecture was structured this way. I wanted to start with healthcare and then we're going to work through business and leadership and end in communications because I think it it starts and ends with people and communicating is how you get the message to people. So can anything you wanted you you, you wanted to add? I know you can talk for a while. I mean, we, we could talk ad nauseum. But uh, anything you wanted, you wanted to add that I didn't get a chance to ask? No, I'll I'll uh, I'll stop on that note, Jimmy. Thank you. All right. Well, Ken, don't go anywhere. I mean, you're going to go somewhere now. We're gonna, I'm going to I'm going to bring you off the screen. There you go. But hang out in the background. There. We'll bring in our next guest, a nationally recognized expert on innovation, entrepreneurship, and economic development. Over his career, he's helped to start 20 technology companies and has advised many national and state political leaders. He's currently the dean of Marymount University's School of Business and Technology, and he writes a regular Amplified column for the Washington Business Journal. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jonathan Aberman. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Jimmy, it's, uh, it's great to be with you, and uh, I wish I could give you a high five in person, but uh, let's, <laughs> let's do this thing online and knock it out. Let's do it. All right. uh, Jonathan, uh, excited to to mix in, as, as, uh, as Ken had just mentioned, interprofessional um, care is what we typically talk about in healthcare, but these things do not exist in a silo, which is really why we structured the Malik Lecture this year like this. But I feel like these phrases, new normal, unprecedented times, it's like nails on a chalkboard, and you're still on mute. Is this thing on? Uh, they seem to be the buzz phrases for 2020. We can laugh about those. But instead of waiting around for this new normal, as people allude to, you recently wrote an article titled, Forget the New Normal, We're in the What's Next Economy. Mm -hmm. In it, you really showed the pandemic is highlighting our inadequacies in many areas. That's what pressure does, right? It shows your fault. But also, you added, it's a big opportunity for innovation by paying attention and not fearing, leaning into what's next. So let's start with, what were the exposures? What, what has COVID-19 shown that that are our weaknesses well i think what COVID 19 has demonstrated is is that um well there's never in ever 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 been a corresponding social and economic crisis like COVID 19. the country has faced social crises before 1968 it's faced uh immunological crises like the influenza epidemic it's faced financial crises like 2008 1929 it's never faced them all at once and you need to really understand in the first instance that our society is being rendered by COVID-19 in a way that it's never been rendered before meaning that as Ken pointed out in his data people are being affected differently not just by their age and their comorbidity but frankly their social class 
we're going to we're seeing very clearly that people who don't have access to excellent health care uh, are sickened and die from this more than people who are fortunate enough hypothetically to have 14 doctors dedicated to give them experimental uh, medicine. <laughs> I know somebody recently got treated that way. I can't remember. <laughs> but my point is that whenever society goes through a event that throws everything up in the air, like COVID-19, there is a tendency among the parts of many people to frankly crawl under a rock and hope that they can make sense of it by just waiting it out. And I think honestly that phrase, the new normal, uh, is a very trivial way to make pretend that somehow this is normal. There's nothing at all normal about this. Human beings are intensely social creatures. They are, continue to want to be social creatures. Human beings want to get out and do things. They want to interact. But they also want things like a society that makes sense. They want a society that's just. Anyways, the point is that when I looked at the COVID situation back in uh, February, March, I made the observation at that time to people who looked to me for guidance and leadership on what they should be thinking about from an entrepreneurship and policy perspective. I said, look, the first and most important thing is to see that this situation is going to expose in a way that we have never really honestly seen the inequalities in our system, inequalities of access to healthcare, inequalities of access to broadband, inequalities in just plain, simple economic inequality, which is exacerbating prevailing trends that already existed around things like artificial intelligence and broadband and so forth. So I was going to do those things. The question is, ultimately, what are you going to do about it? Right. So when I would talk with entrepreneurs who would say, what should I do? My answer was, number one, if you sit around getting really good at baking bread and figuring out what your Lululemon sweat, you know, sweatpants should be, you are missing an opportunity. Because every time there's an economic crisis, great companies get started. So my advice for entrepreneurs was, look, now's the time to make headway. Talking with my students, a lot of them would say, I don't know what to do. I can't find a job. My answer was, you know what? Go get a skill. Stay in school. Go to graduate school. For the policymakers who I would talk with, they'd say, what do we do? I'd say, listen, you need to understand that right now government is the only way that consumption is going to get reinforced. There's not enough private consumption available to make up for the hole that's being created when people are frightened and staying at home. So be ready to spend money now and two years from now when we turn things around. So when I wrote the What's Next uh, Economy columns, and I've done subsequent work uh, with some futurists that retired from the CIA and other things I've written about, my overriding theme is you've got to understand that at any moment in life, you have an opportunity to make a difference. And that's really what I'm trying to get at. Stop calling it the new normal. That's baloney. This isn't normal. Start thinking about what's going to happen next. So, so Jimmy, the way I see it right now today, sitting here a week before the election and seeing what's happened over the last couple of weeks with the stimulus spending by the federal government, and they're not going to be stimulus spending. We've got two crossroads that we have to face as a nation to get through before the economy can really heal. Ken touched the first one in his talk, which is without question, there's not enough consensus around public health. And we don't have enough of a public health system like Europe or China. We're not going to get any sense of consistency until a vaccine is widely available. And that's going to take some time until late into 21 before we see that. The second thing is, and this is why the election is so important, put inside the politics of social issues, 
Every time the United States has faced a financial crisis, and the two most significant ones are 1929 and 2008, the difference between a depression and a relatively fast recovery was not the Fed. I mean, the Fed in 2008 spent money. The Fed's spending money now, creating money. It was government spending. And I know it's unpleasant to talk about and people politicize it, but if you look at the data, in 2007, 2008, the Fed government spent money on a deficit and Obama then traded it down. In 1929, the federal government didn't spend money. It balanced the budget, and it didn't spend money until Roosevelt got elected in 33, and it took until 1941 for the United States economy to recover to where it was in 1929. So people say politics, it's all a sideshow. The reality is, is that we know that, the, that if the Republicans in the Senate do not want to support deficit spending for policy reasons, if the Senate stays in Republican hands, I don't think it matters who the president is. If the president's Biden, I'm sure we'll see expansionary spending. If uh, if President Trump wins again, I'm, I'm not sure what we'll see. But, you know, people like Goldman Sachs and economists, other than me, are saying very clearly, if we don't have expansion spending coming up in January, February, March, we're looking at a long, long recession, if not depression. So this is a big moment. And when I talk with entrepreneurs just to finish it up and I talk with and, and all of our guests, the key here right now is don't spend your time looking backwards at what was mm -hmm. look, spend your time looking forward to figure out how you can position yourself to succeed and pass over those two bridges. Geez. Yeah. Thanks for giving me a chance to rant. I, I, I mean, as you can tell, I talk about this all the time. I've made, I think three speeches on this topic uh, to politicians, policymakers, and others just in the last week. This is a big topic that a lot yeah. of people care about. Yeah. And that's why we really structured it because this is the pressure point. This is the soft spot right now, what everybody is thinking. I mean, a couple of things you touched on. Yeah. I'm a social animal. I mean, I would love to get back to that. That's 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 one thing I definitely think that we, needs to be in the future. We're animals. That is not going to be able to take it away. But if you're looking back, that's going to mess up with your neck. As a physical therapist, you can't be looking backward. You can't want that normal to come with you. Not even the numeral. What's next? And you've got to lean into that. You were talking about, hey, what could you do right now if there isn't a job in the field you uh, you you thought there was going to be? Um, either stay in school or or look, keep your eyes open. What what gaps can you fill with your skills you have right now? So let me tell you that there are a couple of major industrial and economic trends that you could make a bet on if you wanted to make a career bet. The like first that. one is healthcare. You know, we are seeing very clearly that the lack of a very clear public healthcare system has made us much more vulnerable to every other industrialized nation. And you can't run from that reality and you can only politicize it for so long. Meaning that I think that healthcare as an industry is going to see tremendous investment because like we saw in the aftermath of 9-11, people look back at the black swan event and say, wait a minute, what's gonna happen the next time there's an epidemic? So healthcare, even if you put aside the macro trends of an aging population, even if you put aside the macro trends of what we're seeing with these new vaccines, a lot of them are being created in the lab using data sciences. It's no longer just taking inert viruses. Genomics, proteomics are exploding in importance. So healthcare, make a bet in healthcare, either delivering it or creating therapeutics, new technology, or software, particularly as it relates to artificial intelligence, the, the genies out of the bottle, yeah. which leads me to three, which is as software gets more complex, and it emulates human behavior better. The one thing it can't really do is emulate creativity and the ability to think broadly in general ways, meaning that if you're a creative person 
or you're an artist, or you're a plumber, or you just have really good soft skills, can you work with technology, you will be eminently employable. So when I look at those three areas, not only do I see a lot of opportunity for people in academic settings, I see a lot of opportunity for upskilling, reskilling, people going and doing non-traditional pathways to, to training. We're doing a lot of that at Marymount already. Point being is that you can spend a lot of time being sad about what's what's happened. You should definitely spend a lot of time, if you're politically motivated, talking about issues of equality and access without question, if that's important to you. But just on a selfish level, these three big trends are going to are going to shape the next 30 years of everybody's career. And if you can get on those waves and ride them, you're going to be really happy you did. Uh, that. Yeah, that's really where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. The only constant is change, right? That's, that's really what we want to, we want to reiterate. Um, yeah. so you looked really, really at um, the macro letter level of business and kind of how these different systems play into each other. Anything I didn't ask, anything you want to, you want to leave before we, uh, we kick you out and bring in our next guest? I, I think that what you're going to find is that the recurring theme here really is uh, through, I, I guess with, with everybody is that this is a moment in time where authenticity and having clarity around what is going on around you and your place in it is never more important than it is right now. I think we are drowning in a, in a sea of misinformation and we are drowning in a world of complexity. But what I find as a leader myself is that when you are authentic and when you have a clear idea of how you can be a servant leader, you can get an awful lot done and make a real difference. I don't think we have had a period of time in our society maybe ever, where people can make as much of a difference on an individual and aggregate basis as I think they're going to be able to make over the next five years. I love that opportunity. And it's not like I haven't heard that servant leader uh, phrase before coming from Marymount University, something that was woven into our curriculum there. Jonathan, appreciate your time. Let's bring in our next guest. Don't go anywhere. We'll bring you back. Uh, our next guest coming in the studio now, an author, consultant, and professor in the area of organizational change and leadership. She is a sought-after presenter for her recent book, Everyday Coaching and Leader, and fellow podcast host in the area of remote teams, How to Develop Culture Beyond the Four Walls of Corporate America. Uh, our, our next guest coming in the studio right now is Dr. Ginny Bianco Mathis. Ginny, welcome to the lecture. There she is. Thank you, Jimmy. Happy to be here. You come into thunderous applause. That Yay! I'm, I'm piping in via MP3. Uh, Jenny, welcome to the uh, to the lecture. We we move from healthcare into macro systems of business and leadership, and then we come to you to look more at uh, really individual. You're an expert in the area of organizational change and leadership. I feel like leadership in organizations has been going through a lot of change in the past few months. Uh, this platform we're using right here is similar to what a lot of people are using, uh, Zoom or Microsoft Teams if you're using brand names. Because of a new remote working environment at home, as I host this from my living room, organizations have had to develop and implement an entire suite of wellness initiatives and tips for coping in a remote work environment, including like, I don't know, piping in crowd noise to keep me motivated. Right, right. This thing I want to start with and this is a big one, a use, uh, use of organizational wellness programs has increased by 400% mm -hmm. in the last few months. What are some things, as we start with you, to consider that organizations likely never had to consider before 2020? Right, right. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing and exciting for me because it, 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 yeah. uh, it's continuous learning uh, on the edge. Um, I think with wellness, I had to laugh. I went to fill up my uh, uh, car with gas today. 
And, you know, now they have the little videos as you wait there and so forth. Someone comes on the screen. Let's look at wellness. Let's look at what you're going through. And I said, oh, my God, even at the gas station. So I think that organizations and especially those in HR and training are needed right away to put together programs for how do I take care of myself during this time? Because it is hitting me um, in all directions now. Yeah. It's not like I have this one change. This is hitting the very infrastructure of who I am and my identity and talk about mental health. So um, when I was talking to some uh, chief executive officers in, in the world of HR, they were sharing that the very first thing that the folks who were told start working from home asked for was, give me training for how to use whatever it is I need to do the job. All right. Because obviously we're all in this and we're all in this. How do I even use this Zoom thing? Sure. How do I use this? So that they had to pump up and infiltrate the training in every direction. The very next thing, and they said within a week was, how do I take care of myself? How do I work from home and not lose my mind? How do I be professional and also have my kid walking in the background? Um, and, and all these new habits, right? The, the things that I use to be successful, everything from how I would have certain discussions to how I would stage uh, different parts of my work, you know, I had to throw out. And I had to reinvent me. And that was each person all the way to, oh, my God, I'm feeling so much stress. What do I, you know, what are the four best tips for stress? How am I going to get my exercise in? Okay, here's a bunch of ways to do that. Hey, I need to someone to talk to. Who should that be? So in four areas, I have found um, that... Uh, this whole sense of wellness and what's happening afterwards the, with the pandemic because the, and again, here goes that word, um, new normal. Um, it is not what corporate America was and it's not even what working at home is right now. It's going to be something above all of that. All right, let's look at the meta. It is going to be a hybrid world where you're going to have leaders having to navigate and communicate and engage and get the culture out there and keep the productivity up. Whether that person is in an office that you might call still corporate, whether they're out in Timbuktu, whether they're home and they're stashed in their basement, whether in, they're in Africa, all of that. So it's not going to be, what are our new guidelines for working at home? No, what are our new guidelines, period, for how work is to get done? And here's what I'm finding happening with leaders, because I do a lot of executive coaching. Those leaders that have been doing the kinds of things we have asked of them ever since I started my career 30 years ago, be authentic, engage people, talk to them, be human, be honest, um, 
uh, you name it, right? The good, the good kinds of things that we know what, what a good leader needs to be. Sure. They are finding the journey easier. They're just needing to do a slight pivot. How do I get those same results using some new tools? All right. Hey, I can get everyone in a room and brainstorm and get those great, great ideas uh, going. Not the way I used to do it, but maybe using a software package like Miro or, uh, or Mirage, where we can all have this whiteboard and we're throwing stuff up. And I remember I asked one of the CEOs, I said, um, all right, so that's what you're missing. You use, you're, you're losing and feeling a loss. All right. And that causes a little depression. So again, we're dealing with this whole mind health thing, a loss about, you know, not just getting everybody together. What is it going to take for you to concentrate now on the end result, which is the end result of getting everyone's ideas together? What is it going to take for you to learn these new tools? Now, this is a good leader. All right. And he first put his head down. He says, I don't want to answer that. And I said, well, you're going to have to. And he goes, I'm going to have to embrace it, learn it, share it with the folks. And together we will learn to get better and better at it. And that sparked in me this whole thing about leaders who are still believers in continuous learning because every speaker so far has talked, uh, spoken about learning, and those who believe their learning finished. Because we now have the second population who are of leaders who are struggling. Right. They're hiding. Oh, can't wait till we get back. Right? And um, they have a long haul. They're hiding because it's difficult for them they're to be they're, they're scared. Right. So I believe there's this real fear of learning sure. um, going on. I think with technology, you want to ask a question, Jimmy? No, I was going to say, Jimmy, I, in your intro, I use words like expert in the area of organizational change and sought after in leadership. And you're talking a lot about basics. And I think that's <gasps> the common theme is hammer those basics of being real. I was writing these words down, authentic, focusing on culture, focusing on the individual. Those are all basics, Ginny. Mm -hmm. That's the secret? Yeah, I know. It's ironic. And the good leaders are saying, I, I didn't realize how important those things were because that's the only way productivity. That's it. Yeah. Um, um, I was talking to the, da the data folks, right? And they have now been able to um, zero down on those characteristics of a leader and uh, the characteristics of uh, engagement that uh, or behaviors that really um, coincide with engagement. It's no longer just a happy happy test, right? These are statistically now proven. If you do these kinds of things, you will have higher engagement. You will have productivity. So we have, there was a, a Wall Street Journal article where they had some CEOs about, um, oh, what do you think about this, you know, remote work? And half of them on one side of the page said, you know, this can't last, it can't sustain itself. And, you know, we'll finally get back to normal. And the other half, you know, saying uh, we got to go full speed ahead. We got to discover what 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 the new stuff is. Um, 
by the way, there's a real good point there for journalism and communication you know, uh, there. But in, in any if, uh, effect, the, um, the learning of the new habits, uh, and, and that comes into the whole human resources. People now are, they're the ones, you know, that are trying to drive these changes. Yeah. They're the ones doing, uh, working with the medical field in terms of putting these wellness packages together. How do we take um, care of those humans? How to train leaders when they're doing these new Zoom meetings, when they're doing their one-on-ones now through Zoom. What are the cues that you can now see that the person on the other end is struggling? Yeah. Have you even ever paid attention to that? Yeah, we talk about this with, with healthcare providers. Right. So with this is where I think this whole pandemic has caused us all, especially now organizations, to become more human. Yeah, in terms of organizations, I mean, I just took this note. You really talked about engagement several times. When someone, when a guest that I'm interviewing, because that's what I do for a living, mentions a word several times, engagement was something you mentioned several times in a couple of seconds. Maybe the new, the new job to have at an organization is CEO, but it's chief engagement officer. Oh, totally. I'm already working on that model. Right. I mean, it, it, no, totally. And because they're showing, as I said, again, um, the, in, the more engaged, the more productive. Right. Well, if you can't see them, you need to somehow test how they're being engaged. You have to now start measuring output, not right. whether you can see them being busy. Right. And you measure output, but you don't want it to be just a machine. You want them to be enjoying it. And they will come back and work harder for you. Totally. So let's get specific. Let's do tactics. Let's do one or two of each. How are organizations failing? And then let's end on an optimistic note. How are they doing well? What, what, what tactical examples or, or things that organizations can do to cultivate this culture and this engagement? Where's the shortcoming? Where's the, where's the uh, success? All right. And I sort of alluded to some of it already. Um, the companies that are tackling, this will be the new world. Let's jump ahead. Let's look at the opportunity for what this new hybrid is going to look like, at least for our company. What will be the policies and procedures? How is that going to change our job descriptions from, you know, whether you're working here in an office versus you're working at home? How is it changing the whole way we go about recruitment? Now I can recruit from the world. Um, well, the geography doesn't matter anymore. How fantastic. No, no, yeah. Yeah. So this, each one of those have to be looked at individually. What's sexual harassment now? All right. We're, we're scattered all over, right? Is it the delivery man who comes to my door? Maybe I, you know, this has to be, it's going to start some policy changes um, in terms of what am I allowed to ask for? Can I have a new lamp? You know, right. Yeah. Right. So, so those are the companies that are hiding and say, don't worry, we're going back. And I even had someone who works for cybersecurity in one of the very top organizations in this country who said to me, this whole pandemic has shown us that 90% of the jobs we thought 
No, you had to be here because of security reasons. He goes, no, you don't. No, you don't. That was my thought. Yeah. Oh, security, security. All right. Well, well, anyway. So the companies that are pretending it's going away, trying to keep doing things the way they always have done it, um, are going to be, as uh, the dean mentioned, they're going to go away. The companies that are doing it right are putting focus groups together, virtual focus groups. What are we going to look like in a year? What should the policies be, no matter where you're working? Um, What are we going to call it? (laughs) What do we mean by hybrid? Sure. And they're actually putting in the new technology and an infrastructure to make it succeed. They're not just throwing mud at the wall. All right, here's now what we're doing about working remote. You know, here's now what we're doing about uh, making sure the people we hire get background checks. All right, because that all had to be done in a certain way. Now, all of a sudden, magically, some new technology has appeared where no, you don't have to do it in person. It'll be perfectly legal if you do it this way instead. Yeah. People looking for those opportunities. Yeah, I heard a great definition of innovation, and I think that's a theme throughout this entire episode so far, is really um, the, the, the idea of innovation being that you can't solve a people problem with a technology solution. So just putting these together is not the end goal. That's not the end. No, and we have to remember something else, because I do agree with folks who write articles, because I'm reading everything I can get my hands on, about all the things we're losing, right? We're losing the the talking around the water cooler. We're losing that synergy when you meet up with someone in the hallway. Hey, come on, let's all, oh, and, and, and we are human, uh, the very, by human nature, we need other people. Totally, totally agree. And yet we can recreate a more human experience. And that doesn't mean we don't meet four times a year, six times a year in some new venue where we're really making those three days much more powerful than we ever had before. I was going to say, you become, and I've been remote for three years as we stand here, right? And I became more efficient because I knew I had a physical deadline when I was meeting people. I had to be done. Yeah, it's creating new habits. and and um. Yes, speak about what we've lost, but only as a way to say, how do we mitigate it? There are people that will thrive by working at home. I love that. And Uh, there are people who thrive in an office. The new world will take care of both. Yeah, that's a good point. And figure out which one you are and where where you need to go. There you go. Self-assessment. Um, anything I didn't ask, anything you want to dig into before we bring in our fourth panelist? We're going to bring you back. We're not throwing you away for it. No, no. The, um, I, got the, I got the key stuff out there. Got the key stuff out. Uh, yeah. Dr. Bianco Mathis, thank you so much. As we uh, move you out, we'll bring in our fourth and final panelist tonight. Uh, our, our last guest tonight teaches and conducts research about journalism and technology and political communication. Yeah, the closer. Uh, Prior to her academic career, uh, our next guest worked for news organizations, including CNN, NBC, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. She is the author of two books about news and journalism, including her recent book, From News to Talk, The Expansion of Opinion and Commentary in U.S. Journalism. 
She's also a faculty advisor to Marymount University's student-produced newspaper, The Banner. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome in our fourth uh, panelist, Dr. Kimberly Meltzer. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Hi, Jenny. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you and my colleagues for the Malik Lecture. Yes. Thank you so much for allowing us into your home and for you to coming to my living room as well. <laughs> and I, I structured this. I mentioned this. I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the, uh, the lecture tonight. Um, I structured it in a way because I had a hint, I had a feeling that media and communicating would be a theme throughout this whole um, this whole presentation. And I wanted to close with you because I think communication ties these things together. Uh, my background is in journalism, communication, and healthcare. You and I are both here with media in our professional backgrounds. You currently teach and research journalism, technology, and political communication, as I mentioned a second ago. The current president of the United States has labeled the media, quote, the enemy of the people. Wow, I, it didn't feel that way a few years ago, but suddenly that's the label that's thrust upon the media. Let's start with this, Kim. Why do we need journalism? No pressure, but this is this is what you do. So, Jimmy, President Trump has has called the media the enemy of the American people. It's he's using propaganda tactics that are well known to have been used by past authoritarian and anti-democratic regimes, where you identify an enemy for vilification. Um, so in this case, the, the media, um, you try to control all channels of communication or all of the media. And if you can't control them, then you try to undermine them. Yes. We're living in a complex and troubling information environment. And there are, are I believe there are no such things as alternative facts. <laughs> there are facts and there are not facts. There's a reality that we share. It's not all relative, including morality. Science is real. We should listen to proven scientific and medical experts and our democracy is worth saving and needs saving. And as we already knew, but we've had confirmed during the past seven months, clear, effective communication, or in a lot of cases recently, the lack thereof, um, is incredibly important and has a tremendous impact on people's lives. I recently heard the former CEO of the New York Times, Mark Thompson, say that he still has faith in people's abilities, um, that he's not what he termed a cultural pessimist uh, as some others are today. Uh, so perhaps these are not the worst times the world or the country has ever seen, but we have seen that human beings engage in irrational decision-making and behavior, including when it comes to their information use, we have a very divided public with people engaging in selective exposure, selective attention and retention, and errors in information processing and distortion. We have politicians who deliberately lead the public astray to serve their own interests. They perpetuate bad information, misinformation as the best case scenario, and disinformation more often. And we've seen lots of inconsistent, confusing messaging which creates a dangerous situation, especially during a pandemic. So now the positive, <laughs> we need good journalism as much as or more than ever before. And we need people to be news literate. All right. So, so if you use that term, good journalism, I think you highlighted a lot of those things, what would be considered bad journalism or propaganda. That's communicating under the guise or the the moniker of journalism, and you 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 highlighted I thought pretty well of all the different different things that that can lead to, including 
oh, I don't understand that alternative facts. I, I don't understand how this is actually a term. It, it hurts my head. There is no such thing. Ugh. So you highlighted what good journalism is and why we need it. We need to get the right information to the public. I mean, it's it's crazy to me that we're, we're talking on a device right now, this computer, and it's going through, uh, you know, how many different networks to get to the audience, which is watching us live right now. We can we can send a message, but communicating is about sending a message from a person to a person. So now we highlighted what what good journalism is and why we need it. How can we, the audience right now, how can we support good journalism? Yeah, I mean, we need journalists to still filter, you know, you talked to, or our other panels talked about being overwhelmed with the tide of information um, and this complex, you know, environment that we're living in. We need good journalism to keep us informed, whether it's about health information, you know, your voting decision, business, um, we need journalism to hold those in power accountable, and we need journalism to ensure transparency, um, uh, you know, of the actions of those who we've elected to represent us. Um, so how we can support good journalism. One thing that people can do, and I liked how Jonathan and other panelists talked about, um, you know, it's really important during these times to ask and to know what you can do. So one thing you can do uh, to support good journalism is register, subscribe, and donate to news sources that you trust. Uh, and then also consider the extremely difficult job that journalists have today and support legislation to protect journalists. Most journalists are doing their very best, even risking their lives in some cases to bring us news and information. Um, and then, you know, some other things that you can do, right? Uh, you can be an active news user. Uh, so develop your own news and information literacy skills. And this is something that we are teaching our students at Marymount, but it really needs to be taught, you know, from very early um, ages in the education system, you know, on through college and even continuing education um, for people to learn how to be active news users to compare different versions and sources of news, not only look at one, or to not only um, look at the, the headline that someone has tweeted or that someone's posted to Facebook, um, to not perpetuate dis or misinformation. So check and consider the source, the motives, and the accuracy of news stories that are posted to social media before sharing them or acting on them, showing, you know, saying that you like it, um, or you know, a smiley face or a thumbs up. Um, and then people can also look to, they're also quasi-media organizations, nonprofits. Um, these are nonpartisan fact-checking operations, such as factcheck.org, PolitiFact, ProPublica, um, that you know, provide uh, verification of information, you know, check the accuracy of claims that are made. Um, and then finally, I think you know, Jonathan mentioned this as well, People can talk respectfully with others about why they may or may not share uh, similar views. Yeah, you, you talked a little bit about news literacy, and that's that's really that's on, that's on us. That's the exercise, right? To bring it full circle. When we had Ken, a physical therapist, on leading off, that's the hard work because it does feel good just to see a headline and say, "I agree with that." 
my my bias is kicked in. Um, Washington Washington Post did a science experiment with their Facebook page a couple of years back, and I referenced it on stage in front of a few thousand people. And the headline was a clickbait headline. And in the article, if you clicked it, it actually explained that this was an experiment and they asked you not to reshare it. Well, it was reshared thousands and thousands of times based on the headline. And that's the hard work. That's the flexing of the of the, the community, the country's muscle. You've got to do the hard work in terms of improving your news literacy because I think or I feel or I want is not fact. Those are all, in fact, not facts. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on one hand, audiences need to, we they we hope they will be responsible and think they need to take responsibility. Um, but again, we're still seeing a lot of errors in decision-making um, and in information processing. So I think that, in, you know, this at least in part needs to happen through the education system. Um, and as I said, you know, we're engaged in some of these efforts in our classrooms at Marymount, but there needs, you know, there needs to be, um, just widespread news and information literacy education. A discussion, especially because we're seeing generation after generation now who do not understand, you know, have never lived without an internet, without ease, such ease and access to in information and to able to be able to spread that information far, whether it is, as you mentioned, fact-checked um, or not. Um, optimistic, anything going on in the current situation that um, that has made you feel good? I always like to, to kind of weave a thread of optimism in, into any any conversation. Any, anything you see happening that um, it seems to be trending in the positive direction? So I'm really hopeful. Um, I, these are things that I hope will happen or continue to happen. Um, news organizations are going through their own reforms. They are, you know, they too are going through the cultural, political, and financial tumult and doing their own soul searching. Some have stuck to their mission of striving to provide objective news and organizations are finding successful funding models. So I think that's, you know, positive. Um, social media sites, at least some of them are taking actions to be more responsible with regard to the information that's shared across their sites. So they, some of them at least don't, you know, they don't wanna be the judges of content and say sure. that they say they're not content creators or purveyors, but they do provide the platform they enable. And as such, they really need to be responsible and have rules and policies for dealing with misinformation, whether about COVID or voting. Um, you know, they are making a huge profit. Um, I'm hopeful that we will elect leadership that respects institution, science, expertise, democracy, and cares about humankind and humanity. And I think if we have that kind of leadership, then we might see government interventions um, such as legislation, foreign policy um, that, uh, uh, you know, that might even provide sanctions against governments that intimidate, censor, target, and even attack journalists. Um, and so these, these are underway in other places in the world, these kinds, uh, this kind of legislation. Um, and then, uh, I hope that we'll continue to see subsidies for independent local and community news. So those are things I'm hopeful about. I mean, we know that, um, you know, some things we know from decades of research about communication, when we're talking about, um, communicating messages, hopefully about a vac, you know, more, we're going to, Next, we're probably we're, we hope we're going to be seeing messages about vaccines, um, and uh, the state. You know, we're going to see messaging about the safety of vaccines, the need to get vaccinated, but also that the vaccine isn't a panacea, and people need to continue to take precautions. So, 
you know, we know from decades of research that to be effective, messaging needs to be consistent. Um, uh, it needs to uh, come from a source that the receivers perceive as credible and trustworthy. It needs to present clear arguments and strong evidence. Um, and it can be more effective when it appeals both rationally and emotionally. Uh, and then we also have seen that um, using opinion leaders in communities to reach out and educate their own constituents can be effective. So that's a strategy that was used during the AIDS health awareness and promotion campaigns that was um, shown to be effective. Um, and then, you know, so we, again, we know bad information is very difficult to correct or counteract. Um, and we know that people look to and rely on their social networks as much as, if not more so than media experts and official sources. So I just go back to my points again about the importance of being news literate and the importance of good journalism and good journalists. Focus on those. It's important. Flex your muscle too as a consumer, right? Regulate your 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 social media, your information diet. Look at it as things that you are taking in. What is it? What is that doing to you and and your thoughts? And where are those facts? Uh, our, Kim, way to way to back clean up on that one as we bring the rest of our guests back into the studio to thunderous applause again. Fantastic work. Yeah. So I'll, I'll open up. We 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 covered or as, as well as we could an hour and seven minutes. We covered healthcare. We covered business and organizations and leadership and communicating. Um, you know, Ken, Ginny, Jonathan, uh, Kim, as you were sitting there listening to the other panelists, what are some things that you jumped out at you in terms of themes that maybe you weren't considering because you work in the specific field that you do? Kim, we'll start with you since you batted lead off. We'll bring you back in. Anything jumped out with you in terms of a theme that you saw coming back up? Yeah, a couple actually. Um, one of the things that actually I noted, um, this is a time actually not to be conservative. Uh, there's kind of a, this, this theories of complexity science. And one of the things that a complexity scientist would say is when one is in a chaotic state, one has to act, not sit back. And I think at this point, as I would claim, we're probably in a chaotic state with not only within the the COVID or healthcare, but in many areas, economics with Jonathan talked about, certainly journalism that Kim talked about and Ginny, obviously in organizations, it is a time not to be, or to pull back in. It is a time for change and to act upon change. So I think one of the things that maybe is counterintuitive to, to a human sometimes is to take a time and, and to act in change. And I, I hope the audience looks at that as being, this is a perfect time to re-look at yourself, re-look at your profession, re-look at your life almost, yeah. and start to enact change. Yeah, Jonathan mentioned that in terms of leaning in, but you're right, if we go back to us being humans, when faced with fear and uncertainty, we typically, we typically will shy away and say, okay, I want to, you know, if you want to bring up Maslow, I will go to the lowest form of the pyramid, I'll make sure all these things are met. But in times of uncertainty, we're saying now, Jonathan, we, we, we come to you next. Um, leaning in was definitely a theme with you. Anything else that you picked up from the other panelists? Well, I, I want to live in a world that, uh, that, that, that Kim has described. <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, look, I, I think that uh, we, one of my sidelights is I'm a bit of a history geek. And uh, and this is one of these moments where, you know, go and read out a little bit about the decline of Rome and how, you know, the most resilient uh, republic in, in world history was destroyed basically uh, by people 
who figured out that if they could keep a bunch of folks close to them and feed them a lot of BS, they eventually could carry the day. And, um, you know, we're, we're living in a world right now where people are actually denying um, facts, just plain and simple, just denying facts. I mean, uh, you know, just the simple fact is just if everybody wore a mask, this pandemic would kill hundreds, thousands of less people. It's demonstrable fact, but yet it's open for conversation. And I think that uh, uh, there are reasons for that and there are scary reasons for that. And uh, I think all of us, I mean, all of us have a responsibility to, as Kim said, there isn't, there aren't alternative facts. Society and civilization is based on, we all stand on the shoulders of those that came before and um, the only people who deny that are the people who want to cast everyone free so they can be a despot and, and, and manipulate them. And, you know, the idea that, that standing up for truth became an elitist value is, is the biggest mistake that we allow to have happen because it allows us all to be marginalized as academics. We need to do the best job we possibly can to make truth and consistency and an understanding that there is a higher morality of value that we all share. And if we do that, this country survives. And if we don't do that, we are in a world of hurt. And mm -hmm. that's when I, you know, we, we talk about authenticity, we talk about trends, all of us. It's fundamental. It's we're going to share reality or we're not. And uh, yeah, I think that's definitely a theme that we, we found through tonight. Uh, Jenny, you talked a lot about uh, wellness and paying attention to humans, no matter what technology platform we use to bring them together. A lot of the questions coming about healthcare and physical therapy as we draw from some of these uh, that we, we got online, telehealth was definitely something that we mm -hmm. was a buzzword seven months ago. It was, yeah, 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 that sounds great. We'll do that in five years. And necessity being the mother of invention with the rise of these types of services, um, what do you predict? What, what, do, you, what do you see? Who, who's going to be a, a great healthcare provider? The, the words soft skills were spoken tonight. Uh, interview skills, not just by people who might be in media, but by people who want to communicate by a, by a medium. It's where, me, it's where media comes from, guys. Yeah. Um, when, when you hear this, um, what comes to mind with these ri the rise of these services being available? Um, how does that make you feel? Does that give you uh, optimism? Uh, great optimism. Um, I, I remember even having a side conversation with the dean. All this stuff is happening, and I'm happy. <laughs> you know, why the hell am I happy? Because I'm learning. Yeah. This is, it, it's, talk about what Ken said, act, act. My gosh, where do we start? And so I see that as the theme. In fact, I believe right now we're in the bubble of invention, meaning, all right, we've gone through the COVID. We're sort of established. Now it's time to define it. And if we don't, some weird stuff is going to happen on the other side. So do that. I think we also have to go from the conceptual and really get specific. I love the kinds of things that um, um, were shared about, you know, give support that Kimberly was saying, give support to, to the news media that you like. I mean, that's a, an act. And um, I really was hitting engagement. Mm -hmm. All right. So what does that mean? Let's face it. Well, they found that if a see if a leader um, gets on a Zoom call with a person and first asks, "How are you? How's your family?" Engagement went skyrocket. That's right. 
hey, come on, right? Um, just embrace it. Do not be fearful. Yeah, sounds like more of the basics from Ginny, which really makes up advancement. Um, Kim, again, on purpose, brought you in last because I knew that communications and sharing information would be woven through everybody else's uh, information tonight. As you as you sit here and listen to what they pointed out as important, how do you look at, at back at business leadership and and healthcare? How do you, how do you see the, all those things coming together with what you do? I mean, I think. You know, people need to have these information literacy skills, whether the information is of a health nature, an organizational business, you know, your work life, your career prospects, you know, um, your investments. Um, you know, people need to be critical consumers, critical users of information. And we need to trust our experts. We need to trust people who have proven track records mm. and need to believe in science. I mean, I do, we do believe in science, but we, need, like we need to make decisions and policy based on the facts and based on science. Yeah. Act like you believe in science. Act like it. Don't just say. <laughs> but, but there's a key there and, and we're falling into a very dangerous trap. You don't believe in science. Believe <laughs> in God. Science is not a belief. Science is demonstrable facts that nice. are observed. And then people who don't share your your frame of reference, go off and duplicate the same thing. That's the right. scientific process is how humanity has gotten to where it's gotten. It's not a belief. And that's, right. and, and, and that's a really important point. Right. I think you're totally right, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're going to go around the horn parting shot. This is your opportunity. We'll go, we'll go Ken, Kim, uh, Ginny, and then Jonathan parting shot. What's the last thing you'd want to impress upon the audience as we wrap up uh, the 2020 Malik lecture? believe that things will get better and that you can be part of getting it better um, by taking some of the advice that I think is uh, through the round robin of people. Be part of that. Yeah, it'll get better. Be part of that. I love that. That's that's an important aspect. Uh, can we come to you? I would reiterate, I agree with what Ken said. Um, be an active news user. Be, you know, develop your information literacy skills. Um Support journalism, good journalism, um, because we really need it. Yeah, yeah. Both of those so far active. Like, you need to do something. You cannot be a passive um, consumer of life or else it'll run over you. Uh, Ginny, your parting shot, what do you want to leave with the audience? Take the conceptual and make it concrete. So what do we mean by become uh, journalism, journalistic um savvy, right? What do we mean um, to become an actor in this? Just give examples and get down to the doing it again. It all goes yeah. back to what Ken was saying. Yeah. Don't just watch as this passes by on small screens in our palms. Uh, Jonathan, last opportunity, your parting shot. What do you got? I just love being part of this panel because it reminds me why I like coming to work every day. Yeah. You know, this university, Merriman University, because it's value driven, because of the way people here try to do the right thing and and the, this is just so emblematic of what makes Marymount special to be part of. And for those of you that are sitting there listening to this, my big takeaway is don't be disabled to understand that the future that is in front of us will be shaped by what you do, all of us. And if you don't know what to do, look inside your heart and follow your values because people will do the right thing. They always will. I believe that with all my heart. This was a lot of fun. I love being with you guys. Yeah. This was great.
Appreciate your insight. I will leave a parting shot. Uh, November 3rd, cast your vote. That's what I will That's what I will say. I won't tell you who to vote for. Be an educated voter and uh, make sure you vote. And we started with her, President Becerra. We bring her back into wrap up. Dr. Becerra, how'd you think we did from, from all of our living rooms? We do all right? Oh, my God. You guys were extraordinary. So proud of each one, each and every one of you, our deans, our faculty. Jimmy, you're amazing. You represent us well. Go Saints. And just one uh, quick uh, thank you, big thank you to Marlene Malek. She's a, a trustee and alum. Uh, of our uh, nursing program. She's a longtime benefactor of Marymount together with her husband, Fred, and the sponsor of this lecture, Marlene. Thank you for all you've done for your alma mater. And we appreciate for everything that you continue to do for Marymount. So thank you for sponsoring. And thank you to our audience for being with us tonight and looking forward for more thought-provoking panels. We gotta do this again, Jimmy. I love and it. All of us. It was you amazing. Come, you yes. guys can come into my liver, living room whenever you guys want. So thank you guys so much for, for being a part. And of course, the audience, the most important part of the program. Thank you so much for being a part of the 2020 Malik Lecture for Health Professions. Uh, Go Saints. University. <laughs> Go Saints. Thank you so much. Love the PT Pinecast? Yes. Yes. Support the show by telling a friend or by leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play. All right. Show today brought to you by the Brooks Institute of Higher Learning, an innovator in providing advanced post-professional education. Brooks IHL offering continuing education courses in numerous specialty areas, six PT residency programs, an OMPT fellowship, as well as challenging but rewarding internships. The IHL specializes in the translation of information from evidence to patient management, Learn what they can do for you to support your professional development at brooksihl.org. Our home on the internet. ptpinecast.com. Created by Build PT. Build PT provides marketing services specifically for private practice PTs. From website development and hosting. Providing content marketing solutions for PT clinics across the country. See what Build PT can do for you today at buildpt.com. The PT Pinecast is a product of PT Pinecast, LLC. It's poured fresh by me, physical therapist, Jimmy McKay. Ingredients are sourced by our chief connections officer, Sky Donovan from Marymount University. And it's brewed fresh by producer and physical therapist, Juliet Dassinger. And by producer and creator, second year PT student, Bridget Nolan from Sacred Heart University. PT Pinecast is a podcast that saves physical therapists from missing out on amazing insight, remarkable ideas, and motivational stories. Make sure to follow us online at PT Pinecast and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I absolutely love you. I love you, love you, love you. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And if you found value in the show, all we ask is that you tell a friend. This has been another pour from the PT Pinecast. The PT Pinecast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present. More on the show at ptpinecast.com.